Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give, and there's no regular commitment. Just click the link in the show description to support now. Nine. Twelve. Ten. Twenty-eight. Two. Twenty-three. This is Deep State Radio, coming to you direct from our super-secret studio in the third sub-basement of the Ministry of SNARK in Washington, D.C., and from other undisclosed locations across America and around the world. Hello, and welcome to another episode of Deep State Radio. I am David Rothkopf. I am in New York City, where the traffic is terrible. The U.N. has streets backed up for as far as you can see. The president is in town. New Yorkers are hating the whole thing. (laughs) Um, You can hear Corey Shockey laughing because she's in London, England, where (laughs) nothing like that would ever happen. Uh, In Washington, D.C., we have Rosa Brooks. And in Cambridge, Massachusetts, where I don't know what's happening to the New England Patriots, is Nick Burns. And I just got to say, Nick, and I have to start with this, who is wearing the uniform of the New England Patriots these days? Is it a <laughs> We're wearing black armbands. But listen, we've, we've had a couple of examples of the Patriots flaming out early and coming back to win the Super Bowl, so please don't count us out yet. And I know, David, you and I are both members of Patriots Nation. Yeah, no, no, I won't count out. I'm just, you know... I'm I'm just a little bit in, in shock because I've never seen anything like that. Okay, so here I am in New York, and everything, you know, is bubbling up. There are meetings and conferences and bilaterals, and on the agenda is North Korea and Iran and uh, 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 refugees and Syria and a host of other things. And, of course— on the news in the United States is Trump, 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 Rosenstein, Trump, 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 Trump. And so I thought, let's focus for 30, 35 minutes on how the UN meeting looks to the rest of the world. What are <laughs> What is their agenda? Um, and how does all this stuff play to them? Nick, if you were, I mean, I'm sure you talked to foreign diplomats who are coming into town for this thing. What do they hope comes out of all of well, David, I think I think most international leaders coming to the United States for the UNGA have a couple big questions on their mind. Number one, they remember Donald Trump's fire and fury um, Helen Brimstone speech of last year, where he threatened to rain nuclear war down on North Korea, and they're wondering, is that same guy going to show up? Uh, because since then, of course, he's turned towards diplomacy on North Korea. Um, he seems to be more interested in, um, in getting closer to Kim Jong-un, seeing if this rapprochement between South and North Korea can continue, than he is in holding Kim's feet to the fire on dismantlement of, of Kim's nuclear weapons. This is still, in many ways, the big concern in the world. It's, come, it's turned in a better direction, at least we're, we're far from war. But I think people, world leaders are going to try to assess what is Donald Trump's game plan? Because if the plan is just to have another summit with Kim, 
but allow Kim to be to retain his nuclear weapons force, that's not going to be much of a victory, and it certainly won't be uh, stabilizing. The second question, of course, is about the trade war with China. This is dominating discussion. I was just um, in Hong Kong. Uh, 10 days ago, it was the number one issue. And my own view, but I'll be interested in Corey's view and Rosa's view of this and your views, David. I don't see Donald Trump blinking at all, certainly not before the midterms. He wants to show his base that he's tough on China. And interestingly enough, he's got a lot of international support. Philip Stevens, the very well-respected columnist of Financial Times in London, wrote last Friday that Trump is Trump has the guts to try to force a conversation about China's illegal uh, and predatory trade practices that no other leader before him has. And there may be a lot of quiet support for Trump out there on the China trade war, not so much on the other trade wars that he's launched. And last, David, I guess I'd say the ultimate cosmic issue concerning Donald Trump is, does he, is he going to be the leader of the West and come back to supporting a rules-based international order the way that Eisenhower and Reagan, his Republican predecessors, the Bushes, all thought of it, and all the Democratic presidents we've had. Is he going to stop calling the EU a foe and start acting like NATO is the alliance that he's in charge of? Can we place or is bets America about this? first going to continue? Pardon? I'm, I'm just wondering if we should place bets on this. <laughs> oh, I, I, I think the answer, the answer to, to the question questions. is... Yeah, I think the answer to the question is Donald Trump is going to keep on being Donald Trump. America first really is a retreat of American power in the world. But people are going to be looking at his rhetoric and his actions to see if he's moved at all on that question. I think those, that's a good summary. Uh, to start off with, Corey, uh, it reminds me a little bit of that old sort of Hollywood joke, which is, you know, enough about me. What did you think of my last movie? <laughs> You know, and it's like, let's not talk about Trump. Let's talk about how the rest of the world sees Trump. Um, but but yeah. as you as you look at this meeting, uh, as you talk to foreign leaders, I mean, you yourself have even become a foreign leader. Um, <laughs> what what what's the, what beyond what Nick's talked about do you do you foresee? So I I think Nick's exactly right and. But David, I agree with you that one of the real problems that President Trump poses for the international order is the solipsism of the United States and, to a lesser extent, the solipsism of the United Kingdom about Brexit are taking us out of the equation. And for about the first year of the Trump administration, other countries were we're really anxious trying to figure out how to deal with the Trump administration, right? Prime Minister Abe and Prime Minister uh, May and Prime Minister Macron and President Xi were all trying to bank on a personal relationship that would carry over into policy compromise. Uh, Chancellor Schroeder, excuse me, Chancellor Merkel was trying to be a voice for Western values and distinguish herself from President Trump to try and uphold the order. Uh, Canada, Japan, Mexico, right? Everybody was trying to turn keys in the lock and find a way to engage the president. And what I believe we are seeing now for really the first time in a serious way since 1945 is other countries either hedging their bets to build in buffers against erratic American behavior, or they are moving on without us. 
So Japan, Australia, Canada, Chile, Mexico brought the Trans-Pacific Trade Partnership into effect. Japan is training the uh, Coast Guards of Vietnam and of the Philippines to handle Chinese incursions in their waters. Uh, Everybody is moving on without us because they're not that interested in a Trump-centric universe, and they're trying very hard to sustain the liberal order against American corrosion of it, against overt American destruction of it in many cases. And and that really is new. Well, it seems like a, actually a bigger issue uh, and an important one to, to get with, because there is this sort of solipsism that you talk about and 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 certainly Trump takes us to new levels in terms of that and but and that, but but Trump also represents a resurgent nationalism the kind of backlash against globalization that we see in the UK with UKIP that we see in Italy uh, that we see in Hungary that we see in Russia, that we see with the rise of the right in Germany that's gone up to new levels, that we see with the right-wing leadership in Austria. All of these places are, are very, um, uh, uh, you know, much sort of pulling back from the old international order and saying it's coming down to us as, as nation states. And in fact, Corey, some people will listen to this after the president's um, speech on Tuesday, uh, but, but the Trump is is having his um, speech written by that Stephen Miller, the the Theodore Sorensen of the Trump administration. Only uh, <laughs> uh, okay. By the way, Sorensen family, uh, the lawsuit Rosa will Rosa will represent you in the civil damage lawsuit. <laughs> All right. Well, That's yeah, defamatory, I mean, David. Well, that's true, and and I actually can say. You know, I knew Ted Sorensen, and Stephen Miller is no Ted Sorensen. But but I I, I was, yeah. being, of course, sarcastic about it. But but so there is this group of countries that are saying, let's rescue the international order, and there's another group of countries that are saying, let's blow it up, Rosa. And I think that's a big tension. Well, and unfortunately, the U.S. is in the let's blow it up camp at the moment, as, as you said. And, and uh, I think we are we are back to a level of uh, perceived U.S. hostility uh, towards the U.N., the U.N. system and and all of the institutions uh, and and multilateral treaties of that rule based order. Um, you know, the only thing I would say, though, and I'm, I'm trying to get away from our, our U.S. solipsism um, it's hard to get away from U.S. solipsism because the very structure of the United Nations Security Council, by enshrining a permanent veto uh, for the, the the P5, which of course includes the United States, um, uh, you know, means that the U.S. even when even when we and other states want to ignore it, uh, they can't ignore it, and it also, of course, means that even when we want to ignore particular other states, we can't ignore them. I. I I, I had just a, a more general observation that I wanted to make and, and throw out a question for everybody. Um, you know, th- it's not exactly news to say that there's plenty that is wrong with the UN system, um, both the ways in which it enshrines the balance of powers of, of the immediate post-World War II period, 
uh, the ways in which it's funded, the ways in which it's organized. Um, um, but we have, I think, enjoyed, for all of its flaws, we have enjoyed a period of two decades of sort of relative UN harmony, you know, after the end of the Cold War, that sort of Cold War gridlock where anything the U.S. supported was pretty much bound to be vetoed by China and or Russia and vice versa. Um, that, that, you know, after that period ended, there was a there was this sense that even though none of the world's problems went away by magic and there were all sorts of, of failures and fiascos, that at least there was greater a, a greater number of issues on which it was possible to achieve consensus or at least avoid a Security Council veto. Last year, um, there were more Security Council vetoes than there have been in any year since 1989. You know, that oh, we are wow. now back to the Cold War level of, of Security Council veto use. And most of those vetoes involved Syria, unsurprisingly. Um, but but I guess the the question and and this is this is always a question with so much of what Trump does is you know should we all be wishing is it a lost cause to sort of think well come on everybody let's let's all come back to the table ignore Donald Trump pretend he's not here let's just see what we can get done and let's 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 sort of keep keep putting patches on this system that is obviously in many ways uh, antiquated and and clunky and so forth, or is it better to 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 sort of sit back and think, okay, let Trump kind of blow it all up and piss everybody off because that's what it's going to take to force force other states to wake up, including including America, to to wake up to actually start thinking about, you know, what next? And I know Corey Corey uh, has been sitting in some sessions, as have I, with, with other organizations and people talking about, you know, what does the sort of post-U.S. leadership international order look like? It, what, odd, what chance is there that we can steer it? But even more importantly, what do we think it ought to look like? You know, and one theory is that we're not going to get there unless, unless the system as it exists, as it exists, collapsed catastrophically. And I, I, I tend to sort of go, oh, no, but if it collapsed catastrophically, that would be so bad that, you know, I'm not sure that we ever get to the better future. But I'm, I'm curious to know what Nick and Corey and you, David, think about that. Well, Nick, what do you think? Oh, I think it's the number one question ultimately on the mind of a lot of these world leaders. I mean, the fact is that I don't think you can chart a course for global stability without the United States. We're still the largest economy. We're still the most powerful military. We still have enormous political influence in the world. And so um, people are waiting to see what happens in our midterms. They're waiting to see if the Democrats will have control of at least one of the houses. They'll, they're waiting to see uh, about Robert Mueller's report, whether Rod Rosenstein will resign. They're waiting to see if another person emerges to contest power in our own country in 2020 who can win. And I think most governments around the world um, don't see an alternative to the United States and are hoping that we, that's, that, that someone emerges in 2020, Republican or Democrat, who will believe in our leadership role and believe in a lot of the institutions that Donald Trump has been forsaking. I know there's a big academic debate. I'm in an academy, so I participate in that debate. But in the real world of governments, they don't see much alternative. So when Angela Merkel and, and, and um, Emmanuel Macron say we can no longer depend on the United States, I just taught a class on this in the last hour. The question I asked my students is, 
how can Europe really exist in the world without the United States on a practical basis? Well, that's a, I mean, that's a, 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 as you say, that is the big question. And, um, you know, Corey, as I sort of look at the news and things as it, as, as they develop out of, out of, uh, out of what's going on in, in the UN right now, one of the things that strikes me is there are camps even within the U.S. camp that may give people some clues as to what Nick is talking about. And, I, you know, I watch Nikki Haley, who lives in the environment of the United Nations, operating quite comfortably in that environment and at a remove from Trump and everybody else. Um, in fact, I, there was one particular scene uh, this morning, Monday morning, where Trump was talking about drugs, and next to her, next to him was her, and she was then had to say something. He ignored her. Pompeo was on the other side of her. He was kind of ignoring her. And then a little bit later, I was watching the Korea scenes, and Trump's there, weirdly next to Trump in the in the delegation with the Koreans is Pence. You don't normally see both the president and the vice president in these things. And then Pompeo, and then Bolton, and then Ivanka Trump, and Sarah Huckabee. <laughs> it's, I mean, it's, it's just kind of weird that, you know, you, you do get a sense that there may be a Trump bubble, and that while the U.S. may face issues of decline, that what's going on is, you know, this, this moment of high solipsism, um, mm -hmm. is, is, may, may not be very long lasting. And that we may, you know, that we may return to President mm -hmm. Nikki Haley or President, you know, pick your choice from the Democratic side. And it's, and it's all going to start to look a little bit like it did a few years ago. Yeah, I hope that proves true. What I think I am hearing from friends of the United States is that um, there will be a very big difference if Trump is a one-term president who uh, gets his authority knocked over like a bowling pin in the midterms versus whether, uh, whether President Trump looks to be sustaining his support among Americans in the midterms and in the next presidential election. I think if, if there are repudiation, there is repudiation of many of President Trump's most egregious and, if I may say, un-American policies in the midterms by Democratic candidates, independent candidates, and even Republican candidates, we will be looked at in a different way um, than if President Trump is able to claim that he ha continues to have a mandate. The great saving grace of the American Republic is elections scheduled every two years so we can course correct very quickly. So we tend to have extreme outcomes, but we regress to the mean very quickly. Um, and I think that will look very different to people. But I am also hearing a lot of you know, we love you guys. We hope you sort it out. We do not have time to wait for you to stop being idiots. 
we we actually have problems we have to solve. We actually have security concerns we need to address. And if you're not willing to behave in a responsible manner, yes, as Nick said, there's no solution as good as the Ameri- as reliable American involvement where our values help guide our choices, but people don't think that's on offer right now. And many of America's friends in the world do not have the luxury of waiting for this fever to break in the United States. By the way, uh, Rose, I did want you to notice, and Nick, you can notice this as well. Corey did use the term on offer. And whenever she starts slipping into British English, I just want to flag. (laughs) Oh, no, the change is happening. I'm getting gills instead of lungs. Yeah, well. (laughs) When you start referring to things as shite. (laughs) I wouldn't use a curse word. We're trying. No, she would never do that. It's not like a curse word when you say it that way, though. Yeah. Oh, no. okay. Thanks. I ditto, ditto for arse. You get to if you say them with a British accent, then they don't count as curse words, and that yeah. is actually uh, written into international law. Thank you. Oh, and excellent. A, an obscure Security Council, uh, obscure UN Charter uh, uh, provision. Thank goodness nobody vetoed that in all this <laughs> range of vetoes you just taught me about tonight. Yeah. Well, you know, the other thing that Corey said that is, you know, I'm playing with the definition in my head is regression to the mean, because I know what that usually means. But in the case of, of Donald Trump, it's a different kind of regression and it's a different kind of mean. <laughs> I'm interested in the Daniel Kahneman sense of the term. <laughs> no, no, I, I sort of gathered that. But, you know, one of the things we haven't talked about here, Rosa, is that on Wednesday, um, the president of the United States is going to preside over a meeting of the United Nations Security Council to discuss Iran. And first of all, the last time the president presided over a big televised meeting, it was The Apprentice. And, and <gasps> yeah, which is a, a bit of bit of an issue. And then on top of that, um, over the weekend, the president's attorney, Rudy Giuliani, made remarks in which he said that the U.S. was hoping that the government of Iran would fall soon. And he did this while also acknowledging that he was working for MEK, a group that we had classified as a terrorist group for some time. So, you know, it, it's not only that you've got Trump, the bull in the China shop at the Security Council, but you've got somebody who's super close to Trump out there advocating regime change in Iran. So, that, I mean... I, that strikes me as potentially a formula for, <laughs> you know, great TV, but bad diplomacy. I don't know. You think, David? Well, <laughs> I mean, the, the, the sort of humorous thing in all of this, if you don't mind a little humor on the eve of the apocalypse, um, is, of course, <laughs> that's that, our girl. You know, now now he's got his own people in a in a tizzy because because, you know, Half of them, the sane half, are worried that he's accidentally or deliberately going to start a war with Iran. Um, And the other half um, 
are terrified that he's accidentally or going to or deliberately going to sit down and make peace with Iran, and nobody has the faintest idea what he's going to do. And it, you know, true that, that that at the very one and the same time, he's calling for regime change in Iran. On the other hand, he's cheerfully saying, "Oh, he's always available for a personal meeting with uh, Rouhani, uh, Iran's president, at any time." Um, so, you know, as usual, there's there's no policy. It's it. It, we have no idea what will happen. It's impossible to predict what will happen. You know, will his brain be controlled by John Bolton uh, when he when he presides over that meeting, or will his brain be controlled by Nikki Haley, or will his brain be controlled by whatever Sean Hannity just said on Fox News? You know, or by Ivanka? You, you, who knows, right? Um, so, so yes, the the possibility of bad outcomes um, is significant. Um, I, my guess, um, just again, and, and we, we've, we've had this conversation before on Deep State Radio, um, is that Trump being Trump, he usually backs away from the more bellicose uh, statements, you know, that he makes them and then he backs away from them and he doesn't really do much of anything. We, we've seen that uh, repeated multiple times. Uh, we're still in the process of seeing it with North, North Korea um, so my guess is that it won't end up being he'll, he'll say he'll, my guess is that he will say something appalling. Um, you can pretty much count on him to do that. Um, if he doesn't, everybody will cheer that he managed to stay on script for, you know, 32 seconds. Um, but that even if he says something appalling and we all wring our hands for a few days, that he will then get distracted by something else and nothing will come of it. That is my fondest hope. <laughs> well, well, Nick, as you look forward to this, you know, one of the other things that colors all of this, and this is a kind of tiny footnote and that I'd like your sort of view on that, the, 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 the bigger implications of the Trump UN Security Council discussion about Iran. But, you know, I watch him during these meetings and his bilaterals. And one of the things that Trump is just terrible at is pretending to pay attention to anybody else. <laughs> and you know, other people start to talk, and he starts not staring. big on empathy. Yeah, no, not so good on empathy, but not even on listening. And as a professional diplomat, one of the things you guys are best trained to do is to look like you're interested, even if you're not. What? <laughs> um, that is that's been a particular problem with the president in these public forums. But you know, he. He has prioritized some of these individual relationships. So, for instance, he was on Twitter yesterday. The president said some very nice things about Shinzo Abe. They had dinner at Trump Tower uh, Sunday evening before the UNGA started. He's put a lot of time into his relationship with Xi Jinping, as well as Kim Jong-un. You can see that that's where he prioritizes some of those relationships. I think the Iran meeting is, is a um, test of whether or not the administration can act strategically. Because given everything they want to do, and they prioritize North Korea, they prioritize the trade war with China, for instance, you wonder about the wisdom of threatening secondary sanctions on the European allies, as well as countries like India and South Korea and Japan, if they continue to trade with Iran. And um, I know the administration has, a, the president himself has very a very strong emotional attachment to the issue that we should not that we should deconstruct the nuclear deal but there's a cost not just of walking away there's a cost there but there's a second cost of then um, engaging in sanctions activity against the very countries with which we negotiated the deal and so sometimes in diplomacy often you have to pick, you have to choose you can't you can't be in fourth speed on every issue and this would be an issue where I think they would do better if they pulled back 
from the sanctions um, that they're threatening on the Europeans and others because of the Iran nuclear deal and try to get those countries on their side on bigger, more important issues like trade with China. I don't know if this president is capable of that or even wants to have a foreign policy like that, but that's something else to look for this week. He's going to chair the meeting because the U.S. is the president of the Security Council uh, this month. Yeah, no, it's going to be quite a show. There there was a letter by a bunch, uh, just as a follow-up to that, to Nick, that there, there's a letter that, by a bunch of national security folks about the Iran policy. And I don't I don't know if any of you guys were signatories to the letter. Were you? No? I signed it, yeah. You signed it. So one of the I things did. that struck me in the letter was um, that, I mean, to boil it down, because it made a lot of good points, but essentially it was, you know, putting pressure on Iran, you know, setting aside the merits of the, the, the old deal that he's pulled out of, but putting pressure on Iran is one thing, but it's totally useless without a diplomatic, you know, step to try to arrive at a better deal. And that there doesn't actually seem to be that. And on the China trade talks, because he's ratcheted up so high, the Chinese have stopped talking to him. And on a bunch of these other things, uh, you know, w- w- with with North Korea, there's there's summitry and an announcement of another summit, but there's no progress. Um, and on some of these other things, there's there's not even the 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 faux summitry. And I just, you know, Nick, one of the things he's seemed to taken out of foreign policy is diplomacy. Yeah, and that, that was really the point of this letter that many of us signed that was published in Politico on Sunday afternoon. Um, it, it's Most of us, if not all of us who signed the letter, supported in one way or another President Obama's Iran nuclear deal. I supported the deal, but I also have a very hawkish opinion that we should be standing up to Iranian aggression in the Middle East. And a lot of people have that same duality. Um, but what the purpose of the letter was to say, it's not enough to say we're pulling out of the Iran nuclear deal. We have to have some sense of strategy here of what we're yeah. trying to achieve and to and to basically say, as Secretary Pompeo has said, President Trump, we're not going to talk to the Iranians about anything. Well, they've got a standoff right now with Israel and Syria. Iran is going to be part, whether we like it or not, of the end game in the Syria diplomacy, diplomatic negotiations. We ought to be talking to them. And I think you know most of us learned a long time ago Yitzhak Rabin's famous dictum about diplomacy, you don't negotiate with your best friends, you negotiate, in his words, sometimes with very unsavory enemies. That's what he, he said that to justify shaking Arafat's hand on the White House lawn in September 1993, when the Oslo breakthrough occurred. And for the United States to be saying about a very consequential country, and we dislike the government of Iran, we're not going to talk to you about anything. We refuse until you capitulate. That's not diplomacy. That's just posturing, and it doesn't really advance our security interests. So, Rosa, we said at the very beginning we are going to start this with the objective of not make it all about Trump. There was a lot of Trump in this. But I'm just <laughs> wondering, you know, the, as this week un, unfolds, it's not only the former host of The Apprentice now hosting the UN Security Council. It's not only hosting summits with South Korea with Ivanka Trump in the room. It's not only uh, the president giving a speech, you know, that uh, was written by an ethno-nationalist like Stephen Miller, but there's all this other stuff going on in Washington. And, you know, Nick mentioned it at the very beginning, but, you know, 
there's the Rosenstein stuff. There is the Kavanaugh nomination. There, there. I, I think Washington's giving out a vibe, but it's way <laughs> off the the rails right now. It's very quiet here in my office, David. Absolutely nothing is happening. But yeah. but no, I think you're right. I, I was actually thinking about the the Trump solipsism problem. You know, I remember years and years ago, um, I was I don't know listening to the radio or something, and there was an interview with a psychiatrist who has a lot of um, patients who are Hollywood megastars. And the the psychiatrist was saying, you know, this creates some real treatment dilemmas because, you know, normally when you're a shrink or a therapist and you're seeing a patient who's incredibly narcissistic and says things like, you know, well, everybody's obsessed with me. Everybody's, you know, fascinated by me. Everybody wants to talk about me all the time. You know, that that's delusional and you, you need to try to treat that delusion. But when your client is a, you know, Hollywood mega celebrity, that's actually accurate. And it may coexist with, in fact, genuine narcissism, but everybody is thinking about them all the time. And I think I think the U.S. U.S. generally and Trump specifically have a little bit of that quality, you know, that it is impossible not to think and talk about them. They are, you know, Trump, the uh, the uh, reality show celebrity is now, you know, the global reality show of, you know, uh, the United Nations and the White House celebrity. And, and and it's not much as we wish it were possible to just say, hey, let's talk about the UN, but not talk about Trump. Let's talk about uh, the future of the rules-based international order, but not talk about Donald Trump. You can't do it. You know, it's just, it, it is what it is. Um, but, but yeah, it is a, it is a uniquely weird moment here in Washington. I was, I was saying uh, earlier, as we were preparing to get onto this podcast, that I was uh, driving in my car this morning for about three hours uh, coming back from the eastern shore. And because I was driving, I was not um, looking at Twitter and I was not looking at news headlines or anything else. And by, you know, between when I left at, at nine and I arrived at noon, uh, it looked like we'd gone through about four different news cycles in which Rod Rosenstein was resigning, was not resigning, Kavanaugh might withdraw, was not going to withdraw. Uh, and and it's it's very it is very difficult to keep track of it. It's very difficult with all of the uh, sound and fury to figure out, you know, what sort of matters. What what are we still going to be talking about tomorrow, much less a week from now, much less a month from now or a year from now? And what is sort of ephemera? Uh, and I think that the entire world is struggling with that. You know, that is, as Nick said, you know, you've got diplomats at the United Nations who are talking about Rod Rosenstein. Now, typically, your average foreign diplomat at the UN does not know and does not care who the deputy attorney general of the United States is. But this is a moment when the, you know, the great uh, reality show that is that is America, uh, it's impossible for anybody to turn it off or tune it out. Well, that is that is the truth. And uh, I would dare say that all of you out there in deep state nerd land uh, who've been listening to this, I probably have never heard a broadcast of any other type that used the word solipsism more often. And I want you to know that's because we in the Ministry of SNARK deeply resent that in the Trump era, the Ministry of Solipsism is so much bigger and better funded. Uh, but, uh, you know, will that continue? And will, 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 will all of that solipsism lead to problems? You know, that's one of the things that we are going to track, and fortunately, we're able to track it with folks like these. I do want to say before we conclude here, 
we were incredibly moved by the response to the launch of the deepstateradionetwork.com website last week, the number of people who went to it, <laughs> the number of people. What the laughing? great tweets that came out of it <laughs> from great, folks. But the number of people who signed up, who, who, who went and clicked and said, yeah, I want to be a member. I want to support Deep State Radio so that they can continue to do commercial-free, long-form discussions about important issues of national security and foreign policy and politics. It's a good thing we've got a big silo. That's all I can say. It's a good thing the silo is modular <laughs> and, a and made of Legos. I, yeah. I love the whole conversation about what are we drinking in the silo. Yeah, no, and there will be we'll we'll do it. We'll do it drink recipes. But but you know, we 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 you know, we do plan to grow and it's not just going to be a bar. It will be a bar, but it won't just be a bar if people go and click on it. And if you've been listening, listening to us before, listening to us for years, please do. Go to deepstateradionetwork.com, click join, support us and get a mug or go buy a t-shirt or go buy a fleece or go buy a Deep State Radio or Ministry of Snark wine cooler glass which thingy which we've got which is you know cool also so go support us and support shows like this and that means especially people like the folks who made this interesting uh nick burns off at harvard running off to his class Corey shockey in london learning how to speak english again for the second time <laughs> in her life and rosa brooks locked in her office pretending none of this is happening Thank you all very much, <laughs> and we look forward to you joining us on the next Deep State Radio. Deep State Radio is a production of the Deep State Radio Network, a division of TRG Interactive Media. Our podcast today was produced in cooperation with Goat Rodeo Productions and was supervised by Ian Enright. Join us again for another episode of Deep State Radio. If you don't, we know where to find you.